This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. I'm the host, David Intracasso. During this podcast, I'll discuss with Columbia University professor at the School of Public Health and the Data Science Institute, Howard Friedman, his recently published book, Ultimate Price, The Value We Place on Life. Professor Friedman, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be on. Professor Friedman's bio is, of course, posted on the podcast website. Very briefly on background, with an administration apparently not serious about addressing the COVID-19 public health emergency, and with the pandemic having already claimed approximately 87,000 U.S. lives, a vastly disproportionate share of the world's current total of 286,000 deaths, the question arises, what value literally do we place on a human life? As Professor Friedman notes in his book, the price tag we routinely place on lives have major ramifications. The monetary value attached to human life um, can uh, vary widely and greatly, and he'll say, as we'll discuss, unfairly. By definition, lives undervalued are lives unprotected. Since lives undervalued are exposed to greater risk uh, to an individual's health and safety, along with their legal rights. So with that, uh, briefly as background, Professor Friedman, again, welcome to the program. Let me begin by asking, although I will get to the pandemic uh, issue later, um, your book, sadly, of course, is uh, tragically well-timed. Nevertheless, what caused you, I'm interested in learning, what caused you to write the volume? What was your intent? Well, you know, I was originally, I guess, motivated by thinking more and more about the September 11th Victims' Compensation Fund. And, you know, I was acutely aware of the fund at the time. I'm a, I'm a native New Yorker who was living in D.C. It, and that really started this whole thought process for me about how are human lives valued. And my professional career, a lot of it has involved health economics and outcomes research, where we're constantly looking at questions of what is the value of a particular procedure or drug and how can that be measured? So I started really with the Victims' Compensation Fund and then connecting the dots and building that forward. And ironically, my uh, book structure followed my exact thought process. It opens with the September 11 Victims' Compensation Fund and then connects that thread over to the civil courts in which it was constrained by, and then later to talk about criminal courts, regulatory agencies, and then the for-profit companies. Okay, thank you. We'll get to the VCF uh, in a minute, but let's just go over uh, some of the theory and application so before we get to VCF and other examples you provide, what in theory is, intent, is intended in placing monetary value on a life? Well, it, it really depends a bit on the purpose. So I, I almost have to carve it back and say, you know, as we look at what is the purpose and perspective of the calculation, the value of a life plays a different role. But usually you have situations where you have limited resources and you're trying to allocate them in what would be deemed an optimal manner. And what is optimal becomes a, almost a philosophical question. But if you're trying to, let's say, save the most lives, you would make one choice. The most life years, a different choice. 
the most quality adjusted life years, a different choice. If we're talking about health, if we're talking about doing this from the point of view of a for-profit company, they're trying to maximize their profits and they're worried about what is the cost associated with making a product safer and the benefits in terms of what would they have in terms of reduced regulatory fines, losses in civil courts, and damage to brand. Okay, thank you. So let's get into the calculation. There are variables typically uh, considered in attempting to sum a, a total. You discussed formally what's termed the concept of the value of a statistical life. So what are uh, typically some of these variables that go into calculating uh, the value on a life? So let me let me describe that value of a statistical life a little bit more because uh, some people may not be as familiar with it. This is a calculation that was developed uh, by economists in a few different ways. Uh, in some cases, they look at people's stated preferences, doing surveys and asking people how much uh, risk are they willing to take on for an additional amount of money. That's one way to do it. Uh, other calculations look at wages. They look to people who are working riskier professions and how much more would they get paid. Or looking at how much someone was willing to pay in the real world dollars to reduce their risk by buying safety products. So with all these different methods, the result is that the regulatory agencies all use the same number for all lives. Uh, call it roughly $10 million. There's a little variation by regulatory agency, but it's a very large number. And what the regulatory agencies would do is if they're considering, for example, a new regulation for less arsenic allowed in the water or less pollutants in the air, then they would look at the costs that that implies to society. Usually uh, companies would have to pay more in order to keep the water cleaner or maybe it's the local municipality. And then the benefits in terms of how many lives are saved, how much less morbidity. And to convert the lives saved to dollars, they would use this value of a statistical life. So that's where it appears, usually in the conversation of regulatory agencies. And it's a large number, large in the sense that far more than people would typically earn in a lifetime. So in some senses, it's a numerator and a denominator in that it's it's value over cost, for example. Um, so the way it's estimated is a dollar per risk. That's really how they come up with this value of a statistical life. Uh, it's 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 not really an individual base, but it's really very much about how much someone would pay to avoid, let's say, an extra one in ten thousand risk of dying of cancer, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's all applied using, you know, from a regulatory perspective. So they're looking at society's costs, not individual costs. Right. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Let's get into a couple of examples that are illustrative. And you mentioned, of course, the Victims Compensation Fund relative to 9-11. I thought this was a fascinating conversation. Um, so this was yeah, explain me... explain to me how and why this came about and then how is how are how are dollar amounts calculated for mm -hmm. uh to pay families of those who died uh, on 9/11 Absolutely. So this is uh it's in a unique situation. So there have been previous terrorist attacks in the United States and certainly a 
horrendous amount of murders in which the government did not set aside a fund. But for September 11th, a large pool of money was set aside, and Kenneth Feinberg was uh, assigned as the special administrator of the fund. He was given some restrictions. He was told he must consider economic impacts when he makes offers to families. And if the families of the victims accepted an offer, they would receive money by also simultaneously signing a contract agreeing to not sue the airlines and other entities. So he did have freedom. He could create a calculation, and he had a formula. He had a formula in which the minimum value of life was $250,000. And it's important to note that in civil court, there is no minimum value. So this is something that he asserted because he, he felt that it was necessary that families would be offered something, no matter how old the person was or what they were earning. He also incremented it based on salary, but he capped the salaries. He said, no matter what you are earning, I'm only going to assume you earned a max of a little over 200000 a year. And by capping it, he, he also asserted something, which is that he wasn't going to allow for astronomical ratios. He added some extra factors for like the number of dependents a person had. The net result is the range of payouts to the families of the victims was from 250000 to over $7 million. That's a 30 times range. Of course, had he not put those caps in place, had he not restricted the maximum income, and had he not put a minimum value, it would have been massively more. Salary alone in the United States, if you're earning minimum wage, will only yield you about 15000 a year, while there are executives of some of the largest companies in America earning hundreds of millions of dollars. So this was the calculation. Now, it's important to note that it wasn't really loved by the public. It was actually quite controversial. Only a few years after he had completed it, he himself said that given the opportunity, he would have paid the families of the victims the same amount of money. And he said it would have been easier to implement, it would have been fairer, and it would have been more accepted by the public. Fast forward to the Boston Marathon bombing of just a few years ago. There was again a victim compensation fund. This time it was private money, so no constraints were placed on, uh, in this case, again, Kenneth Feinberg. So he was administering that fund as well. And in that case, he did exactly what he said he thought was appropriate. He paid the families of the victims the same amount, regardless of age, regardless of what they were earning, regardless of any factors. Thank you. So in the VCF formula, you know, uh, there was economic value, dependent value, how many dependents the victim mm-hmm. had surviving, and then non-economic value. You did say the average was a million dollars, although there was a wide range. And then interestingly, females received, as you know, 63% of the average payout for male victims. And you question, and you explain why that is, because largely explained by the fact females typically are family caregivers, which means they're compromising wages or income. Uh, so very, um, uh, very interesting. Uh, you do mention, uh, you did mention, obviously, as you do in the book, um, the Boston Marathon bombing. Let's go to, and you provide numerous other examples. Let's go to the, the classic textbook uh, example of the Pinto uh, Ford vehicle. Mm-hmm. And this is a business application per your introductory comments. Companies are trying to maximize their profits, so they're weighing the risk versus the benefit. I found it interesting, although I, I'm assuming it would be more dollars if they were inflation-adjusted, 
but the fix, which uh, the Ford Motor Company did not implement, was $11 per vehicle. So explain how that evolved, please. Absolutely. So I'd be happy to do that. I, I also want to acknowledge uh, a huge point that you made uh, in the setup to this question, which was talking about gender impacts on these payouts. Mm -hmm. So I just want to acknowledge that point because this is part of the inequality, the gender biases, racial biases, age biases, location biases. If you're making a assessment of the value of a human life based on income, all of these biases play in. So that said, moving on to Ford Pinto, the context behind it is Ford was looking to introduce the Pinto as a lower cost car into the United States. Regulatory agencies were exploring increasing the safety regulations. Uh, Ford crafted a memo. It was a cost benefit analysis in which they calculated the costs of increasing the safety of the car, basically correcting a, a known defect. And as they've laid it out, the benefits in terms of the lives saved. And this is taking you back to the 70s. So the value of a life back then was only a few hundred thousand dollars. Uh, and they used the number that was actually given them to, the, to them by the regulatory agency. Why was the number so much lower? Because that was a number that was derived based on income and earnings. And remember, the value of statistical life that's used by regulatory agencies now is based on risk. So they did this calculation. And a lot of people think that they went out of their way to really push the numbers, make it look like it was going to be very, much more expensive than it actually was, and to um, make it look as if the value of the live save was not worth as much. Uh, as it turned out, in civil court, they lost a lot more than they had assumed that they would lose. So that was one big mistake. The other big mistake was really about the calculation going into the public domain. And it wasn't their choice, but Mother Jones wrote an article and the public was livid. I think it was one of the first major exposures of the public to understanding that companies constantly look at this trade-off of safety and human life, monetizing human lives. Fast forward to today, for-profit companies still do this, but one of the inputs they use for the value of a human life is based on what will they lose in civil courts and in regulatory fines as well as brand. And those numbers are much higher now. Case in point, the Toyota acceleration case. So only a few years ago, Toyota had a known issue with the accelerations. They could have fixed the issue. They chose to not do that. And as a result, less than 100 people in the United States died. So tragic that people died, but really uh, a scale that uh, is fairly limited. But the actual settlements uh, between the regulatory fines and the lawsuits was enormous. They ended up paying on the scale of about $20 million per victim. Now, if a company is considering whether or not to put additional safety mechanisms into their cars and they have to insert the cost of an incremental preventable death of $20 million, it's really going to encourage them to make safer cars. Flip side of the coin, if that number is much, much lower, for example, imagine that the number they're using is, let's say, $500,000, it actually will encourage them to put in far less safety devices. And that's back to the point that you framed really at the beginning, which is, Lives that are more valued are more protected, and lives that are less valued are more exposed to risks. 
uh, you do know it, of course, more recently in relation to the Ford matter, obviously the recent issue about the Volkswagen, the diesel vehicle. Of course, they there, um, they, they gained emissions testing, but they did, uh, choose not to solve, uh, uh, provide a solution to the, uh, to the problem. Um, and they play, and obviously that played out and did not work ultimately to their favor. And that's billions of dollars in the book. So you do provide numerous other examples, Union Carbide and Bhopal. Of course, the more notorious you say, perhaps this all reached the moral low point with uh, Philip Morris in its uh, benefit cost analysis <laughs> regarding encouraging the Czech Republic to encourage smoking because, of course, and this is joked in even healthcare pretty uh, morbidly that um, smokers die sooner, which means they consume less Medicare and Social Security dollars. But evidently, Philip Morris provided a calculation uh, to, the, to this extent for the Czech Republic. <laughs> it's it's so horrendous that in their formal apology, they actually had to state that they ex- it exhibited terrible judgment as well as a complete and unacceptable disregard of basic human values. Now, I uh, I understand that Philip Morris is a business, um, but I think that they vastly, vastly underestimated what the public would, reaction would be for supporting a piece of analysis like this. But to me, there's a deeper point. You know, when, when I was in the corporate world for many years, uh, running data modeling teams, we have the short term, right? You have the projection of what you're going to lose in terms of regulatory fines and what you may have to pay in civil court. But there's a long-term brand issue. It's 2020. The Ford Pinto case is five decades old, and we're still talking about it. And I think if companies think more deeply about doing more positive steps, right, really building good brand, that can also hopefully build long-term positive as well. So uh, I think when companies think short-term, there's a tendency to add more risk to human lives. Uh, part of that is the corporate dynamics of the decision-makers of the company. They, you know, Five years from now, many of them will be long gone, retired, or have mm-hmm. moved to another company. But if they have to look and think 30, 40 years out, companies will be a lot more conservative and a lot more likely to want to preserve human life. Well, this is the classic problem, uh, which can be uh, identified in numerous instances, and that is we we vastly discount the future. So that's an example mm-hmm. uh, here. I will I do want to note, just as a quick aside, you do make note of what's begged here are constitutional protections. The 14th Amendment relative to equal protection implies that lives should have equal value. I, I do want to say as well that you are, to your credit, I found... Um, pretty explicit about the fact that this modeling is almost nearly always flawed. You say every price tag method to determine the value of human being is logically flawed at page uh, 25. Let's go to healthcare specifically, and you do provide a brief mention of how we moreover don't do this work. Uh, and in fact, the Affordable Care Act actually banned cost-effectiveness or research or CER as it's termed while other countries, you note, uh, the UK's National Institute for Healthcare for Health uh, and Care Excellence, um, uh, nice. And then, of course, this begs the question of uh, quality-adjusted life, year, life years and disability-adjusted life years. How we calculate 
uh, healthcare delivery or paying for healthcare delivery. What's what would you say um, other than the uh, legislative ban on uh, Medicare, for example, using CER research in its uh, reimbursement? Um, what would you say is the state of play relative to the healthcare industries uh, doing these studies to to the good? So it's. It, this is a real key area where the U.S. healthcare system is so distinct from other countries, and it, it always makes it uh, a challenge to remind ourselves what is done here versus other places. And so, you know, to your point about NICE in the U.K. and many other countries that have health technology assessment groups, they're focused in particular on a whole set of criteria about what should and shouldn't be funded. And they do look typically at not just effectiveness, but cost effectiveness. You know, if I can achieve the same health outcomes on average and spend half the amount, well, it seems like it makes sense to spend half the amount. So that's a pretty common calculation. Uh, and there are different metrics people can use for it. Uh, I do discuss a little bit in the book about the fact that change the metric and you'll change your decision. If my goal is to maximize the number of lives saved per dollar spent, that's different than life years saved per dollar spent. Why? Because life years starts bringing in this question of age and life expectancy into the conversation. And quality adjusted life years has an additional factor. So I'm not only recording whether or not someone is alive, but not all years of life are given equal weight. So again, it starts bringing in other conversations. Uh, so you brought up the the point very clearly about the U.S. Affordable Care Act really blocking a lot of that analysis. But as we look today, we do have a situation where states are having to plan for what would happen if they have insufficient health resources and they have to start allocating. And it's interesting because different states have taken different approaches. Uh, for example, Massachusetts had issued a recommendation to their hospitals that if they have a limited amount of resources and they have to make a decision that they should prioritize by expect life expectancy and that think about comorbidities. And they said, and as a tiebreaker sort of idea to consider age. So states are thinking through some of this right now in the situations where if their health system gets overwhelmed due to the number of COVID cases. Now, obviously, a lot of the public health strategy right now is not just to control the infections, um, but also to prevent the health system becoming so overwhelmed that they have to be, make those, um, you know, what I refer to as Sophie choice decisions mm -hmm. between which life to save. Right. And that's the intent of public health, moreover, is harm reduction. Let me ask, there are, I have, I have two uh, side questions and we discussed this briefly before we began it. You do have a discussion about insurance companies uh, or insurance, life insurance as it relates to employers buying term policies on employees. I note this because, and this was your discussion briefly at page 107, I note this because several years ago I interviewed a law school professor on this practice. Uh, it's oddly termed a dead peasant's insurance, whereby an employer oftentimes without the awareness of the employee uh, buys a term, term policy rather on the employee. Some accident occurs in certain instances the employee dies, they collect. Of course, the family is more or less outraged by this. 
it's done for several reasons, least of which uh, there is a tax advantage since um, premiums are tax deductible. Um, now, in probably more appropriate cases, as you note at this, employees are motivated uh, to manage um, the risk associated with, you say, valuable employees, but this practice has gone on to actually employ low-level managers uh, who are doing um, storefront retail work, so it's widely practiced um, uh, across industries. Um, Mm -hmm. yeah, no, you're, you're absolutely right. And actually, to take it even further, um, you know, there's some famous cases, for example, when Walmart uh, had taken out insurance on exactly. a large number of their employees. Uh, so in theory, it would be the company trying to protect themselves. Right. right. And, and that's what I said, those highly valuable employees. In practice, what you see is, besides the point about the tax advantages, uh, they may see this as, quote-unquote, and I write in the book, a good bet uh, if they have insight that a insurance company does not have. And that, as the family, it sounds horrific. It really mm -hmm. sounds like the type of thing that you would never want. Um, but this does come up, and, and the role of the company is quite interesting. It, it actually came up um, somewhat indirectly even in the September 11th victim's compensation chapter because you know, I mentioned, of course, that uh, this – fund existed and, and about 98 percent of the families uh, accepted the payments. But interestingly, uh, some companies sued and got a lot of money as well. Uh, so companies not suing, they you know, it, it, not not waiving their rights, not trying to get a fixed payment from the government, but actually suing and, and winning compensation. So this this plays a role in, in many places that a lot of people would think are counterintuitive. Okay, thank you. Let me I, go to, you do mention, I found interesting, uh, listeners are probably where I've done numerous uh, health, climate change, climate crisis related uh, interviews or discussions. You do mention uh, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, this is the UN uh, Commission, and that they um, have attempted to forward their work in part by calculating, uh, providing calculations relative to the effects uh, the climate catastrophe have, will have on human life. I, I note this because um, you may be aware this past January, the Ninth Circuit Court uh, ruled in the Juliana versus the United States that the federal government has no le legal obligation to ensure uh, a survivable climate. In fact, I'll just quote quickly uh, the dissent opinion by Judge Staten stated the government has the absolute and unreviewable power to destroy the nation. Um, <laughs> All that aside, that's I mean, quite a quote. Yeah, it is. In fact, it's it's a very disturbing decision. That aside, just to make the point, could you say a bit more about uh, how we're attempting, or how the IPCC UN is attempting to value human life as it relates to the climate catastrophe? Particularly because you do note that uh, the victims are oftentimes without any power because they live in countries. So they have no standing in those that are providing more of the greenhouse gas emissions. I mean, I think the broader point is really this question of income-based valuations of human life or valuing lives equally. I mean, at its core, that that that's the deeper question. Uh, so taking, you know, what you, you had commented about the fact that the uh, IPCC in their analysis had used different values of life, it 
it raises lots of concerns. And the most typical concern is that, like I said before, the lives that are less valued are less protected. And what you see is the reverse. When you start valuing all lives equally, you don't get the not in my backyard type mentality. Right? Suddenly, all people have equal standing in terms of having their lives protected. So I think that that's really the bigger point, which is something that has been embraced by regulatory agencies, you know, certainly U.S. regulatory agencies. And it's something that I think reminds us that this type of analysis that's done, whether we're talking about the compensation fund, health insurance, life insurance, or any of these other areas, is an economic discussion, but it's also a political discussion, and it's also a human rights discussion. And they, those can't be separated. So I think that's really, to me, the bigger picture that I would I would convey on that point. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you. Maybe my, perhaps my last question is: Let's go to uh, the pandemic. Um, as I said, your book sadly is is well timed here. Uh, though you say in your introduction, the book does not provide a policy prescription. Regardless, uh, how do you see your work uh, generally in context of the current pandemic? And I note that because you do also conclude in your volume a discussion of biases. So, for example, you talk about the identification bias. So, in context of those harmed or injured uh, relative to COVID-19, uh, for example, have you heard any discussion about whether there would be any effort to try and value? And I ask that, too, because you probably are aware that Congress is now, in fact, the healthcare industry is lobbying the Congress such that hospital employees, for example, are prohibited from suing their employer if they should contact the injured, mm -hmm. harmed, or, 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 or die from uh, an infection. Um, so, yeah, so that, it's that a great question's question. begged here. Yeah, it's a great question. So, I mean, with this pandemic, first thing is inequalities have run rampant. Sure. Uh, those who are most ex more exposed to the virus, often those who are in perhaps service industries, not paid as well. The economic impacts have had substantial inequalities. But to your point about this um, liability protection, I think what you're going to see is many industries, not just the healthcare industry, try to lobby the government to try and basically give them liability protection. And the government has... Uh, you know, somewhat of a conflicted position here, right? They they understand that if a company is extremely concerned about opening up their doors, having their employees come back, and then the employee can substantiate that they picked up COVID-19 due to a coworker, then they're open to lawsuits. So if companies are concerned about their liabilities, it will certainly delay their willingness to have more and more employees in the office. On the other hand, um, this is, to me, back to the point about valuing the human life. And uh, when I think about this whole COVID-19 situation, I, I do think that we have a framework. The regulatory framework is the right framework, which is lining up what are the cost implications and the benefits in terms of reduced morbidity and mortality. But we have a big problem. The problem is this scale is so much bigger than the framework was designed for. The knowledge of the virus is substantially less, and the uncertainties in the projections are so large. So it's a situation where 
you have a structure in place to solve a more basic problem, but now we've got a problem that's two orders of magnitude larger and more complicated. And so we can't use that framework. So we have to go back to using judgment and I, in particular, position and the protection of human rights. And the most basic human right, I think, is the right to be alive. So I, I would love to see the government focused on that idea that if we do lean on this framework, then we have to balance a risk with a value of a human life of around $10 million. And that requires serious safety mechanisms to be in place to try and really minimize the spread of infections. Right. So as we started out, uh, adequately valued lives are more protected as opposed to undervalued or underprotected or unprotected. Absolutely. So and, cor- te- absolutely. and take your point, you, you, your point you just made about the uh, this request coming from the health industry to basically provide uh, immunity. You know, right. Immunity. It's basically saying they're asking the government to say, please, from the perspective of me as an employer, I want you to allow me to value my employees at zero dollars. That's what they're that's the message they're sending. And. I think the government may be tempted to do that, but we as citizens and human beings should be aware of what that message is. The message is clear that we are not going to protect your lives uh, or we will do minimal protection because now we don't have to worry in terms of the payouts later. You know, If you think about the calculation a company would then make in terms of what are the costs of benefits of reopening, they would have to look and say, well, if they do have a employee who gets sick and dies, they would lose, of course, the employee's effectiveness, but they would not have to add into that equation the additional payments that they would have to make to the family because of the untimely death. It's not in that equation, and so the company would have to be tempted to have less safety mechanisms. That's really the trade-off that keeps happening. Well, I hate to say it, but my concern is we'll see numerous more dead peasant insurance policies because this is the way employers can uh, um, bet uh, bet or provide themselves some financial uh, safety should, in fact, the, the employee be injured or, or pass away. So, well, they, they, they would say they're managing risk. Right, exactly, um, yes. But, but to your point, if you do have stock in companies that sell that insurance, seems like a, a good time to, <laughs> to hold on to it. Well, my last point is, per this last issue or question, it does beg the question, per your comment, what will be the brand of the federal government relative to how it decides uh, on blanket immunity? So with that, um, uh, Professor Friedman, we're at our time. So I do want to say thank you for a fascinating, interesting conversation. Uh, I wish you every success with the book, uh, and we'll see, see how this all plays out. So I appreciate it again. Thank you. I, I appreciate it so much. It was a real pleasure. Take care. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archive program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.